Welcome to the Jerome and Kevin Present Podcast. The Sester can't die. Maybe it's better you don't know who your father is, Cartman. No way, dude. I can't stand to leave things unfinished. It's like when you hear the first part of that song, Come Sail Away by Sticks. If I hear the first part of that song, I have to finish it. Really? Yeah, I, just, I can't do anything until it's done. I'm sailing away. No, don't. Set an open course for the virgin sea. This is Jerome and Kevin present a show where we discuss various short-term television shows. It's a brand new year, and we are exploring a new concept, Cancel Too Soon. Each month, we'll discuss a show. This month, we'll discuss the one and only season of Freaks and Geeks. My name is Jerome Cuson. You can find me on Twitter, at JeromeC1985. Uh, I am one of the co-hosts, and I have seen Freaks and Geeks multiple times. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that also includes Pantheon Plus. There will be movies, Flooping the Pig, and in the archives, Real Bad, Mars Investigated, and from Broadcast Depth. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms that includes Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. So to ask to help people discover the great work that we are doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has also seen Freaks and Geeks. So... Typically, what's what's ended up happening in so many of our previous uh, show reviews is one of us has seen it and has been able to lord over knowledge over the other. That will not be the case this time, as Kevin and I have seen uh, this show many, many times. Um, as this is a must, much-discussed show, uh, we are going to be focusing on the characters and the themes instead of doing an episode-by-episode recap. So this is going to be a little bit different. Uh, than what we have typically done in the past. We've kind of gone episode by episode. Uh, That'd be really difficult because it's 18 episodes and a lot happens in each episode. So we're going to kind of cover themes. But Kevin, I'm going to start with the most important question regarding the show. Why are they using Ronda Rouse's WWE theme to start the to start the episodes uh, i'm really upset you stole my joke this is not a great way to start our theme this is not the great way to start a new year surely a year that will be better than the last is for you to steal one of my jokes i how could i steal your joke when i didn't even know you were going to make it i don't know you just knew you we've been doing this we've been doing podcasts <laughs> together for so long that i feel like you knew and you just you just decided to take it away from me what when were you going to make the joke? Was this going to be like your ender or uh, when it came up organically? For, quite quite truthfully, I didn't even know that you knew it was her WWE theme song. The highlight of this podcast over the last couple of years is my surprising you with my knowledge of music. Well, well, even just like I don't know where you are in the in the wrestling verse anymore for a few years. You seem to have basically checked out, which is the smartest move possible. So, so that's why I'm like, does he even know that Ronda Rousey came out to it? Will this joke even land properly? Uh, but you know me, that does not matter. It only matters that I make the joke and it makes myself laugh. But uh, so, 
Yes, not only did you know a music thing, you knew a wrestling thing, so that's crazy. And as I watched the show, I was like, I wonder how much of this music, like, that you even knew outside of this show going into it. Because you're just not a music guy. Many of the songs that were on this show I have heard in other movies, or I have heard enough to to know what they are. So, like, Sail Away, like, I've heard that song a bajillion times uh, it's in the pilot. Like, that's a song that I know. And South Park has also made fun of it. So right. I would also have the cu- cultural knowledge. So most of the songs, like, it's funny, The Grateful Dead, I definitely have not heard a lot of their songs. So that one kind of left me in the dust in the last episode. But for the most part, in terms of the music, I, I pretty well knew at least I had some cursory knowledge or had heard the songs in other places before. Um, because the thing is, Kevin, that there's so many movies that use needle drops now that I, I am actually proposing a one-year moratorium on needle drops until we can form a committee to explore how they can properly be used and not just used in the way that mu- movies abuse them. Uh, so, yeah, I can... You know, I wonder if they had just... If they had ditched the music budget for the show, could they have just continued on? That's a good question, but would the show even be the same without the music? I mean, I refuse to watch the streaming versions of this and watch my DVD versions specifically because I wanted the original music. And I think, you know, we're I don't I don't want to speak too soon, but I feel like we're about to embark on a renaissance of physical media making a small comeback, at least secondary market stuff like you know, this is one of those DVDs and sets that it, it kind when it, it it's one of those shows that I think found another life on DVD like Arrested Development did, uh, like Family Guy did. Now, those shows got brought back and Freaks and Geeks didn't. But I think it's really emblematic of that time. And it famously took forever to come out because of all the licensing and stuff. But I think it's worth it. And I think it's because of the changes that streaming platforms make uh, to shows one reason or another that you need some of these on on a on dvd or blu-ray still just to also ensure that you're going to keep it like you know there's disney buying up libraries left and right there's stuff getting dropped on and off so if there's a movie or a show that you really like and you want to make sure that you're going to be able to watch it whenever you want you can't count on streaming anymore you can't even count on stuff like voodoo i think anymore because who knows when that stuff will lose licenses and then just drop from your library you really need to have it in your possession one way or another. And uh, yeah, Freaks and Geeks is a DVD I've had, whew, I don't know, 16 years at this point, And it was right on my shelf and I picked it up and it was like uh, like having an old friend. Looks great, sounds great, fantastic. Yeah, it's a really nice set with a lot of extra commentaries. I, I've never actually sat down and listened to the commentaries. That's something I should maybe do at some point because what an incredible list of people. I could just spend the next 10 minutes just listing all of the famous people behind the scenes in front of the camera. But instead we're going to kind of go through just some of the important creatives, even before we get to the incredible cast. Yeah. First off, I think we have to talk about Judd Apatow. I think he is probably, he's not, he is an executive producer. He is not technically the creator of the show that goes to Paul Feig, but I would say that Judd Apatow in terms of comedy in the 20th century there may be no more influential figure. And I think that some of of his work has undoubtedly not aged very well, but he is such an important voice in comedy in the 20th century. 
We're talking about his directorial efforts that include 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Trainwreck. I would argue those are probably uh, his three strongest movies. He's also been a producer on a number of projects, including The Big Sick, Walk Hard, Super Bad, as well as Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And other creatives have certainly uh, played a role in that as well. So Jed Apatow, he used to do stand-up comedy. Then he kind of got into uh, the producing and writing game. And it feels like it feels like he had a really good 10-year run. And it feels like he's not as influential as he once was. But even his name as a producer, I still think, carries a lot of weight. Yeah, I think and, – and I think you're seeing this a lot. This happens in, like, music with, like, a Dr. Dre or something – where they've made their body of work for a decade or so, and now the money in their interest is giving new people a platform using their name to get their brand of comedy or music out into the world. And I think that's what Judd Apatow is doing now. And he put out that remarkable Gary Shandling documentary. And there's so many times when watching Freaks and Geeks Back, I was like, okay, this feels like um, a moment where he is getting his comedy nerdiness out. Like when... Bill is watching the Gary Shandling um, special or, or appearance on a late night show at one point, or like you hear the, the, the discussion between the geeks about stripes versus the jerk versus Caddyshack. I'm like, this is just Judd Apatow's thoughts coming out of these characters, which is not new for TV shows or anything. But yeah, I mean, he was just a gigantic comedy nerd who posed as like a magazine writer to get interviews with people back in the day, loved Gary Shandling to the point where he made this kind of like documentary trying to find him before his death, all these things. And you can really see those fingerprints on the show at times. And yeah, so I think that's, that's where he is now, but I think you're right. There's nobody more influential to from like 2000 through 2010, 2012, what have you in comedy than Judd Apatow was, especially in the cinema. I mean, 40-Year-Old Virgin might legitimately be one of the best comedies ever made. I think it, I think it belongs up there in the pantheon with some of the very best. And you could certainly also make the argument for something like Knocked Up and Trainwreck. I, I don't know about you, Kevin, but and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more because the director of this movie also was a huge contributor to... Uh, Freaks and Geeks. I think Walk Hard is an incredibly underrated movie, and I think it broke the musical biopic. It's unfortunate that it has not broken it to the point where they've stopped making them now. Yeah, I do think Walk Hard's overrated. Honestly, I don't. I don't. I don't think nearly as highly of Trainwreck as you do. But uh, yeah, Walk Hard's great. Loved the Big Sick. Uh, really like Superbad and Forgetting Sarah Marshall too. So just a, a litany of uh, of. Big comedies, a lot of stuff that I think really influenced people's perceptions and like the way they see comedy too. It, it, a lot of their comedy influence and how they view it was uh, was because of Judd Apatow and his movies. And it feels like uh, Freaks and Geeks, like it, it's weird because like would these movies have happened without a Freaks and Geeks? Probably not. But it also feels like Freaks and Geeks and then Undeclared came almost like too soon. Like if they came after all those movies and stuff became a hit, man. Like, I think those these shows would have done way better than they did during their time. Uh, but again, it's a weird chicken and the egg situation. I mean, I was looking at the ratings for what the for what the show originally did. And let me tell you what those those ratings were bad. In 1999, the networks would be begging for ratings that Freaks and Geeks were, were getting in 1999. Six million people are not sitting down to watch network TV unless 
it is CBS at this point. And that is not a desirable audience because it's obviously an older one. Right. It's like if you're CBS or football, basically, you can get those numbers or higher. And that's about it. And that's just I mean, it speaks to a lot of how television is these days. But the fact that they got those ratings then and couldn't even survive to a second season uh, says a lot about just how much stuff has changed in a couple decades. All right, let's talk about Paul Feig. He is the official creator of this show. And, you know, I I, I, I think if we're going to rank the important creatives here, I, I would say that he is a very solid number two. I, I think that he has made perhaps one of the more important comedies of the 20th century and maybe ever because I think for so many years, I think men got the raunchy comedies. That's just the way it was going back to the days of your porkies, your meatballs, your stripes your animal house, and even getting into the 90s, a lot of the focus was on male protagonists, thinking about like American Pie, Van Wilder. Paul Feig kind of finally directed a movie that allowed women to kind of get into some of the raunchiness with Bridesmaids. And I think that that movie is 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 excellent and it's definitely one of the better comedies right up there with 40 year old virgin in my mind i also think he's done a couple of really underrated comedies as well um i don't know what your thoughts are on melissa mccarthy she is a mixed bag but the heat and spy are two very funny and sharp comedies paul feig also directed the 2016 ghostbusters which we are not going to have that conversation all i'm going to say is uh that movie was a mixed bag and uh, move on. But I also think he did the very underrated A Simple Plan, which is a movie that it didn't do tremendously well in theaters, but that is a movie that I feel like has found a lot of life uh, in the VOD kind of t- at home HBO realm, kind of those kinds of things. So uh, Paul Feig uh, is somebody who is known for kind of directing movies that have female protagonists. So the fact that this show so heavily focuses on Linda Cardellini's Lindsay uh, is not a surprise. No. Um, and he also was a, a, a did a lot of directing in the television world for stuff like The Office, 30 Rock, Arrested Development, even Mad Men. He recorded to, or he directed some episodes of. So obviously somebody who has a lot of respect in Hollywood people. Like and and it seems like a lot of the actors when you hear them talk about him speak very highly of him as a human being and uh, and also just someone who has a keen eye for television and the way things are shot. Um, and he's also done acting himself. Like I think a lot of people from our generation maybe remember him as uh, Tim, the nice camp counselor from Heavyweights. And he also has a small bit role in in uh, this show as well. So and a lot of the things he directs. So. Yeah, he's he takes a different approach than Judd Apatow, but I think if you talk to a lot of people uh, that he works with, he's very highly regarded. And I think you're right, like him and, you know, if if, whether you like her or dislike Melissa McCarthy, a lot of him is responsible for her, uh, her being uh, in the spot she is today. So Mike White is a very interesting case because Mike White is. I would say probably best known for being the writer of School of Rock, and he also wrote Nacho Libre. He was a contestant on two reality shows, Amazing Race and Survivor. Spoiler alert, he was the runner-up on the Survivor season that he was on. And what's funny about that is that Survivor premiered the summer before Freaks and Geeks and uh, is still going to this day in the year 2022. 
Uh, he is also known for a lot of other failed TV projects like Enlightened, which might actually end up being a show that we eventually review with this concept because it's a really interesting one. But Kevin, he finally broke through this year with the monumental HBO Max hit, The White Lotus, which uh, captured a lot of people's imagination. And at the age of 50, Mike White has finally gotten a, a really popular sh- a really popular show that kind of crossed over into being a mainstream hit. So it's good that we're talking about this because we can finally say uh, that Mike White, the guy who was known for a million failed TV projects, finally has a successful one. And that and that really speaks to persistence paying off, doesn't it? Uh, thinking about like Mike White, it's so funny because like I love School of Rock. I think that movie's great, and I don't really like Nacho Libre at all. But I think that also maybe speaks to the difference between Richard Linkletter and Jared Hess as well. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, also interesting, he was a contestant on Survivor. Like wasn't behind the scenes or anything, an actual contestant. And here we are. But this is definitely a name I did not know until he was listed here. All right, then there is Jake Kasdan, who is a second generation Hollywood person. Uh, he is the son, one of the two sons working on this show, along with his brother, John. Uh, Jake Kasdan is perhaps a little bit more well-known because he directed uh, Walk Hard, which we mentioned earlier. But he has also directed the two Jumanji sequels, which I-, I think the first Jumanji of the ones that he directed is probably better than you're thinking of. Um, but his brother, John, is perhaps best known for writing the sc- helping to write the screenplay for Solo. I don't know if that's a good thing to be best known for, but there it is. Um, I think I, I would say that's a good thing to be known for. Um, I've not seen either Jumanji sequel, so I have nothing to say about that. But yeah, Walk Hard's an excellent movie. Deserves more credit. All right. We talked about Allison Jones uh, when we talked about Barry, but I think we we really have to give her her flowers for this one because I, this is one of those situations where even if I did not list off the rest of her credits, I think we could just say that she was the casting director for Freaks and Geeks, take a step back and just put her in whatever Hall of Fame you want to because I, I, I cannot think of a single miss as far as this cast going up and down from the leads to the supporting roles to the cameos to the guest star roles. I cannot think of a single miss amidst this cast and undoubtedly a lot of the credit has to go across the board to the people we mentioned but given that Allison Jones has done casting for this undeclared fresh Prince of Bel-Air what we do in the shadows Parks and Rec Brooklyn Nine-Nine The Good Place Curb Your Enthusiasm United States of Tara Arrested Development the United States version of The Office plus movies that include Borat Knocked Up Booksmart and Bruno uh, Kevin, that is that that is basically comedy in the last like not even the 20th century, but we're talking about comedy for the last 30 to 40 years. If you include her stints on Family Ties and the Golden Girls, that is it is absolutely unbelievable. You know, what's interesting is I was I was going to mention this about Freaks and Geeks here, but honestly, like reading off all those shows you just said, you could say it for pretty much all of them in that. The legacy of Freaks and Geeks isn't going to be that it's a good show. It's going to be remembered as being the start of the career for so many people on the screen. And it ended up being the start of the career for a lot of people off the screen, too. And I look at, like, how many people were unknowns until The Office? How many people were forgotten about or got career resurgences because of Arrested Development? 
would Will Smith be where he was without the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? I don't know that I love the phrase, give them their flowers. I say give her a lot of money uh, and a lot of accolades. But yes, Allison Jones, just that list of shows is remarkable for the casting she's done. And you could talk about writing, directing, all these things. But at the end of the day, a good cast that people like is what's going to make a show as good as it is. It's it's the combination of everything. But if you've got a crummy cast, good directing and good writing can only go so far. So holy cow. But I think it's she will deserve a lot of the credit for the casting choices made in Freaks and Geeks for launching so many of the, the careers of the cast we're going to discuss. So with that in mind, we've talked about who the casting director is. Let's actually talk about the cast. So we're going to go kind of and talk about the Freaks first and then the Geeks as that is – the, the order of things, and I think when we talk about the freaks, we have to talk about Linda Cardellini as Lindsay Weird. The thing that I did not realize and I kind of forgotten is that she really is the lead and the centerpiece of the show. Yes, this is kind of an ensemble, but at the end of the day, this really is Lindsay's story. We start with Lindsay in a lot of ways, and we kind of end with her. So... I think this is where we have to start. And I think when you look at her career, this is really the only thing that she's done where she, I think, has been kind of a definitive lead. I think, you know, she is on the Netflix show Dead to Me, which I think is probably one of the best things. And again, it's something that has kind of crossed over into a more mainstream appeal. She was on kind of the latter day seasons of ER, which were not as popular, but still, you know, chugging along with her career. She, of course... Uh, is also in the MCU. She's been in a couple of Avengers movies and as well as the, uh, the Hawkeye TV series. So it's, uh, it's pretty crazy to think that uh, she has just been such a part of Hollywood the last 20 years, but has not necessarily gotten the, maybe some of the roles uh, that some of her fellow freaks, especially have gotten. And uh, I think she's really outstanding on the show. And, we could get into a lot of specific plot points, but I mean, she really anchors the show in a good way. And I think the writers, I assume a lot of the credit has to go to Paul Feig here, just really building her character out, allowing her to make mistakes, but also never not making her sympathetic. Like she is always a sympathetic figure, even when she is making mistakes. And I think they allow her to be a human being, but they also don't sexualize her as well. That's actually something that I really liked about the show in general is yeah, I think there are some there are some there's some pieces of dialogue that maybe haven't aged well, but it never feels like they're they're sexualizing either the young women or the uh, or the young men on the show. And that's also something I really appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think you get that later with MTV shows and CW shows and things of that nature. But I wonder if part of that's the network uh, show, but also like it's just like that awkward teenage uh, period where I think a lot of people it's a more honest experience, I think, of high school sexuality than some movies of, of the 80s or even some of Jed Apatow's movies would put out there. Uh, and I, yeah, I really appreciate it for that. I think like like what you're kind of getting at, and I think is kind of the case is that like freaks and geeks is still considered Linda Cardellini's best work, even if she's been able to get bigger money projects like an MCU role, ER, Scooby-Doo, things of that nature. It seems like what, for, for whatever reason, nothing she's done 
people think is better than Freaks and Geeks, and I think it's because she is the the face of the show and is so synonymous with it. Um, and you know that's not necessarily a slight on all the other things she's done, but I'm glad that it's one of those things where she did her great quote art piece, and now she gets to make money because of it. I mean, isn't that kind of the dream for a lot of people? I mean, yes, it would be great if everything you did was a, of immense quality and beloved and a, and a cult favor. But again, the show got canceled. It, it it found its audience later. So if this is the show where people are like, man, she's great and she got a lot of work from it, then I think it's it's worth it. And she does a phenomenal job every episode. And even when she's not the central point of the episode, uh, her role always feels very important. And you're right. Like I did kind of forget how crucial she was to the show, but even so I feel like it comes down to the weird family in general. Like I forgot how much Sam was uh, important to, to the show. And I really like when you get the family coming all together uh, and just the different dynamics they have, which we can talk about later with the parents and stuff, but yeah, Linda Cardellini crushes it in this show. So, I, I, again, we're not going to do kind of an episode-by-episode episode rundown, but for each character, maybe with the exception of one, is there, like, a favorite character moment that you have for Lindsay? I think there's two that come to mind immediately. One is the way she has to react when Nick sings Lady by Sticks to her in her, in her basement as sort of, like, his way of telling her that they can wait to have sex and then also the episode where she smokes pot for the first time and then forgets she has to babysit, I think. Oh, and then also when she has to listen to Daniel go through his sob speech about being a poor student twice and she bursts out laughing in the guidance counselor's office and nobody understands why except for him because she realizes that, oh, his sob story is an act and, it, and she just can't help herself. Those are kind of the three character moments I think that are some of my favorites of hers. I will say that very often when actors play high, it just comes off very poorly because they they over exaggerate it or they they talk about, you know, having the munchies and and crap like that. And the thing that I appreciate is that Lindsay gets the paranoia aspect of getting high uh, really accurate, or at least it comes across as accurate. And that's something that I really appreciated, uh, specifically uh, with her getting high. I think her reactions to some of the behaviors of her fellow freaks and even her brother and Neil sometimes, uh, those are some of the best moments of the show, is just her reacting to everything. And yeah, I, uh, yeah, just a tremendous performance across the board. Um, let's talk about James Franco as Daniel Desario. I don't want to spend too much time on James Franco because there are a number of accusations surrounding James Franco and relationships that he has had with underage women. And there's apparently been some payouts because of it. Seth Rogen has professionally distanced himself from James Franco. He has not really done a lot of movies or TV over the last couple of years. Uh, people will say he's canceled, but that's what happens when you are an adult and you try to date underage girls. So I don't really want to talk about him for very long, but all I'm going to say is there are a lot of aspects of Daniel Descario that have not aged well, knowing what we know about James Franco. Sure. But you know, I think this is a mature enough podcast to know that any any talk of the character isn't us saying James Franco did nothing wrong or anything Correct. like that. No, you know? I, I, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true, but it so, just, it, it just in light of what, in light of the knowledge that we now have, it just, it doesn't come across well. 
No, but I do think what I like about him and and some of the other freaks, especially Kim, is that there are actions to consequences like him getting held back in high school twice, uh, seeing that their broken homes have an effect on their life. This desire to try to find themselves in life while also trying to balance school, their home life, things like that, like Daniel going through all the the breakups and makeups with Kim. The, the punk thing in the episode and then eventually I, I love what happens with him in the final episode when he embraces the geeks and finds that you know staying sober and playing D&D is actually a really great time and something that he wants to continue doing so the journey that him and 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 later and and sort of with him Kim take uh is an interesting one um one that I don't that I you know I'm very fortunate to not experience myself but I have to imagine to people who are in those situations, it feels very authentic. Like the mo- like the the one episode where he's late for school and his mom's like, well, I need you to go to the, the pharmacy to get your father's medication because he's in pain and I can't trust your brother, the junkie, to get it and bring it home. Like, what do you do in that situation? That's that's tough. And like school doesn't understand. They just give a shit that you're that you're there on time and in class. Um but that's life. That's 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 hard times, as somebody would say. And I think it's 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 good to have those characters in shows like this. That's the thing that I really appreciate about the show in general is that they slowly explore the lives of all of the characters, the home lives. And you kind of get a chance to see uh, the various kind of class levels that everybody's at. And you walk away from this show with an understanding that the Weirs are kind of an upper, upper middle class family because, you know, their father is an entrepreneur. I mean, you see that Neil's family is also kind of in the same class, if not a little bit higher, uh, because his father is a dentist. But then you see that the majority of the other characters, including Daniel, including Ken and Bill, like they are very much in kind of a lower class working class situation and there are different reasons for it it's not that everybody's situation is the same like kim and daniel are both from broken homes but they are both very specific and it's not like it's not it's not too general like kim's mother is in a very different situation than daniel's mother it seems like and that's the thing that i appreciate is that the way that it gets broken down is different and not everybody is the same person for the same reason. I also I also wanted to ask at some point, or maybe now is a good time to ask in general about just the setting. Now I know it's different because it's Michigan versus Illinois. You weren't alive in 1980, 1981, certainly not a teenager at that time either. But how do you think they kind of grab some of the Midwest suburban vibe of this show? I mean, I, it, it, it comes across very well to me. It comes across like people who have actually lived in the Midwest. And I mean, because I think they do represent, it's not just, again, just the upper middle class. They do represent, you know, different class systems. And that's also something that I think separates Freaks and Geeks from other shows of its ilk. Uh, this show is very clearly done in response to other high school shows, 21 Jump Street, Beverly Hills, 90210, Dawson's Creek, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, yes, Buffy is kind of um, heightened because of its uh, because of the the whole monster thing. But you know, again, you are dealing with kind of middle class, upper middle class. But here, you're kind of exploring different class systems. And I am certainly not somebody who is an expert to really to really talk about it. But 
There is clearly an attempt to talk about class in the show that you don't really see in a lot of other network shows, especially, but it's something that you still don't really see today. You don't really see class talked about. And there is at least an attempt made, even though there are unfortunately very few minority characters on this show, but there is definitely an attempt to talk about class. And I think that's representative because that's kind of what the suburbs is, is it can be a range even though even though I think the suburbs can get stereotyped as being only for rich people, there are poor people that live in the suburbs too. And very often, especially in the time that we're talking about, 1980, at a time of white flight and people leaving big cities, probably even more so. And I think that's a, that's a lot of what you get. I think you get kind of the you kind of get the the conservative nature of a lot of the characters as well. The fact that so many people are, you know, Republican and voting for Ronald Reagan. And that's something that we're kind of told uh, as we go on late in the series. But yeah, I think there is definitely an exploration of class and just the different ways that people can live in the suburbs. Yeah, totally. I, I don't really have much to add. I think you kind of nailed it. All right, let's talk about Seth Rogen as Ken Miller. So Seth Rogen, especially in the early episodes, he really, he gets a few lines here and there. I I think some very funny lines, but I don't think they really cracked his character until kind of the second half. And I don't think the show is bad in the first half, but it really feels like they find that voice in like, from like episodes 12 through 18. I think it just... It really is like they're just throwing everything that they have because they know that this is their only this is going to be it for them. So it just it really feels like everything is being laid out on the table. And especially with what they do with Ken and giving him a full character. And it's funny to watch his hair like he he slowly like gets his hair to the point where that we now recognize as kind of the Seth Rogen hairstyle. But yeah, he's just, he's kind of a minimal part. He's not even in a couple of episodes, but by the end, he is just as important as any of the other main characters. And that's something I appreciated because it really feels like the show and he grew together. Yes, he he's a perfect example of that. And it's also a perfect example of that. Every character eventually becomes very dynamic. And Ken's the last one who gets it. Every freak has like a side story with their family or a struggle and Ken finally gets that uh, at the end when he starts like dating the tuba player after a whole season of just wise ass comments, no interest in anything but music and getting lit. And then finally he get, he finds an equal in a sarcasm department in a female and he develops a crush and you finally get his fleshed out character. And I mentioned this to you in text, but I think it is remarkable that they dealt with the topic of an intersex birth. Uh, And then him questioning his sexuality because of it and going to the guidance counselor on a network television show in 2000. Like, it blows my mind that this is something that they had to deal with. And it's something you would not have expected the character Ken to have to deal with, especially when you go back to those earlier episodes. But it's something they finally gave Seth Rogen to sink his teeth into. And I think when you watch those scenes in the guidance counselor's office, you're like, Okay, that's the Seth Rogen I eventually get to see in the movies. So, yeah, Ken Ken is a very underserved character for a very, very long time, but they finally give him something 
uh, late in the season. And it's something that I really appreciate and really liked. For sure. And I think it would be really, I think that that for both of us has probably been our favorite aspect of the, of the Ken character is getting to explore uh, a relationship with someone else and him kind of becoming more authentic. But like, even the way that he relates to Nick in the couple episodes with disco and the fact that he's so, into rock and roll like you still get some of the close-mindedness of his character as well like even though he's evolving like there's still a lot of growth that needs to be done so yeah i i think that it's it's very evident that judd apatow and paul vegan those people uh they very much connected with seth rogan's character and the fact that they continued to beef him up uh i think says a lot and then the fact that seth rogan would go on to be such a huge part of the uh of the apatow universe i think is represented uh by these last few episodes as well yeah like he is one of the main guys in undeclared especially and he's a definitely a different character and then of course in for virgin the lead in knocked up uh, and you know, had part the cop and super bad and everything else he's done. And he himself has become a force in Hollywood as a, as a writer, director, actor, and whatnot in the later parts of like the 2010s and what have you. So like, again, I think it's because of the start on freaks and geeks and the relationship with Jed Apatow that he took off as an actor. And then somebody who himself is able to influence, uh, Hollywood, the comedy side of it anyways, as well. Jason Segal is Nick Endopolis. What a fascinating career Jason Segal has had. So Brian and I, when we did our episode on the 2011 Muppets, we got into his career a little bit. And what's so fascinating about it is, like, he gets his start here in Freaks and Geeks. He gets into the Apatow universe. He's done a few episodes of Undeclared. He's done, he does a supporting role in Knocked Up, gets the lead in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Then he starts doing a CBS sitcom called How I Met Your Mother. And for that show, you know, kind of chugging along the first couple seasons. But because of DVDs, that show takes off and it becomes not only a critical darling, but it becomes a mainstream hit because now everybody wants to know who the mother is. And what's so interesting is that Freaks and Geeks in another era also could have been that show but dvds were not as prevalent streaming was not as prevalent you really didn't even have dvrs at this point but 10 years after jason seagal does this critical hit uh he starts on freaks or he starts on how i met your mother a show that eventually goes on for a nine season run and we're not again we're not going to litigate the ending of that show but jason seagal basically never has to work another day in his life because of the time that he spent on that show and, you know, now he's kind of exploring uh, kind of small independent movies, and uh, he is going to play uh, former Los Angeles Lakers coach Paul Westhead in the uh, upcoming HBO series about that team, which I am very much looking forward to. I know Kevin probably could not care less, but I am very much looking forward to that. What a career Jason Segal has led. Uh, I, I didn't even talk about his character. Maybe that's something you could do, but uh, what, a, what a career this guy's had. Yeah, uh, and I and you talk about the small movies like I really loved him as David Foster Wallace in End of the Tour. He's another very dynamic person, and he just has this like very affable quality to him. And I think you see a lot of that in Nick Andopoulos. He is definitely, I think, of the the freaks, the most likable. He's the most nice. He's the most understanding. He's the most open minded. And it's and it's easy to see why Lindsay would become attracted to him. Maybe not as infatuated that Nick is, but Nick also is a very passionate person. You see it in his drumming. 
You see it when he gets into relationships. Uh, it just uh, is unfortunate that he's not more passionate about his schoolwork. Um, but again, like even with the geeks and other people, he's much more kind. He he He's more like a live and let be type than a lot of the other freaks are where it's if you don't like what we like or whatever, like we're going to put you down. And we also put people down to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And Nick doesn't have that. You know, his biggest problem is his hard ass father. Uh, who doesn't approve of his drumming career and maybe getting too into relationships too fast. And then pot also being uh, a component for better or worse in his life. And yeah, another interesting facet is just his mother never shows up. You have his hard ass father who also uh, Kevin Teague is a hard ass father and lost, which is very funny. That was interesting to see that, but he, he often made me laugh often very funny to see love seeing him uh, also communicate with the weirs the adults of the weirs especially uh, like the episode where they start to uh, really enjoy his company and Lindsay's like what the hell is going on also probably produces the most awkward moments of the show which is probably not something you would have expected from the freaks versus the geeks but yeah like him singing lady to Lindsay yikes big time yikes but yeah I really like uh I really like Nick Andopoulos, and I really like Jason Siegel. Him ending up in his underwear outside of Lindsay's room as well is another oh my tremendously God. awkward moment. Those nut huggers, and you and like he just has like the waistband with nothing covering his side. Whoever made that choice in uh in the costume department chose the most hilarious possible thing for him to wear for sure. And oh God, and like you want to talk about favorite moments in that episode where uh, Lindsay's father introduces him to Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, and he's just losing his mind listening to it is so funny. I mean, I I think in terms of performances, he, uh, among the male performers, he probably is my favorite just from start to end. And I love by the end, like in the first episode, he's saying the disco sucks. And at the end, he is literally participating in a disco contest and, uh, and, and dancing. And it's um it takes a lot. For, it takes a lot of temerity to just get into those outfits and dance as like he does. And it's funny because, again, I recently watched the 2011 Muppets. Uh, Jason Seagal is not a bad dancer, I will say. Dude, and I love that. Like, again, he he attacks things with a passion. And maybe I think that his friends have the right idea that he's originally dating Sarah to try, kind of make Lindsay jealous. But it seems like he really gets into disco and during the competition, the dancing, like he's friggin' feeling it. Uh, and it seems like he is able to, to move on from Lindsay and embrace something that he once thought he hated it. It, it, at least my read on it was it became something that was not natural. He was doing it just to get, just to get revenge or whatever on Lindsay, but then he ends up genuinely embracing and enjoying it by the end of the season. Something I'm curious about, if there were future seasons, I wonder if they would have done the will they or won't they with Nick and Lindsay. I could definitely see that as a possibility, but I think the way it turned out, I think it it ended up being really well. Like the fact that he ends up kind of embracing something that maybe he wouldn't have just months earlier. Uh, He's not smoking marijuana, which I think, I think the show can... I think, again, this is 1999, so I think a show almost has to be uh, a little bit more judgy about marijuana usage than it would be now. I mean, come on. Seth Rogen is literally doing Instagram lives about doing different things with weed <laughs> at this point. So I don't think – I think we've moved past the the kind of judginess, but 
I I do appreciate the fact that um, they they kind of go there and they do talk about marijuana and that it's it's not a clerk's cartoon situation uh, where Jay is selling fireworks. I, I I like that at least. Yeah, I I think it also just fits the finale where everybody's kind of opening and exposing themselves up to new experiences and ending up enjoying themselves. Like I talked about Daniel embracing the geeks and Dungeons and Dragons and them embracing him back. You have Ken embracing the idea of being vulnerable in a relationship. And then with with uh, with Nick, it's the disco thing. Uh, So it all it all fits together for me. Uh, Needless to say, I thought the finale was excellent. All right. Yeah, I mean, I think the finale, it was it was about as good as you could expect from for a season of 18 episodes. Uh, so let's talk about Busy Phillips, who has become she has become a personality unto herself because of podcasting and TV and kind of being herself and kind of embracing a certain personality. And Kim is kind of an exaggerated version of that and a much meaner version of that. And I think you watch the first three episodes and she's just the worst person in the world that you would never want to associate yourself with. And you're almost wondering to yourself, like, why do even Ken, Daniel and Nick associate with her, specifically Daniel dating her? But you really get a lot in that fourth episode. Uh, Her mother is played by the great Ann Dowd. I want to point that out. Uh, Kim Kelly gets a lot of shine in that fourth episode. Um, as she becomes friends with Lindsay and the nature of their relationship changes, the nature of Kim's relationship to the geeks uh, changes as well. Uh, that fourth episode, especially among the first half, it might be my favorite of the entire series just because they really go there. They really get emotional. And for a show that kind of embraces being a dramedy more so than either a straight comedy or a straight drama, uh, the fourth episode, I think, is where the show just does a, an unbelievable job of building up a character who has basically been on the sidelines, but they really do turn her into a focal point. And even though she is not in the opening credits, uh, she definitely becomes uh, she definitely becomes a, a, a an important part of the show. And I can't imagine what the show would be like without her, especially because Lindsay does not have a lot of other female characters to play off otherwise. So I think that only makes what Busy Phillips is doing all the more important. Yes, I agree with that. That fourth episode is tough. It's a gut punch. And it's and it's a very, very much a good look at somebody who puts on this tough exterior and is a bully, but you see their home life is shit. Their relationship isn't as perfect as maybe they put on. Uh, and there's just a lot of stuff they have to deal with. They're they're coping with the death of a family member they loved. And it's and it's like the first time you see not maybe the first time, but it's a theme you get in this entire show is just like adults are assholes and they're not always right. And they don't and they aren't as smart as maybe they try to lead on. It's a very te- it gives teenagers a lot more benefit of the doubt than a lot of adults do or should. But you also understand like why they wouldn't with a character like a Kim Kelly. And what I really like, too, is when she tries to befriend Lindsay, Lindsay doesn't like take to her right away. She's like, you've been mean to me this whole time. Like, why would I be your friend? Like, get away from me. Uh, and it takes a lot more warming up for that to, to end up working out. And I think it's it's also the reality of one of those situations, too, where if I'm going to be part of this group of friends, I have to put up with everybody. I don't get to pick and choose who out of this group I deal with and either – I don't like this person and I exit stage left or I just put up with it. Uh, and I think a lot of friend groups have to put up with that. Like, oh, this I yeah, I'm going to go to this party, but I know this really annoying person that always gets invited is going to be there 
hopefully I can just avoid them or hopefully they won't be so bad this time. Uh, but Kim is an ever present force in that friend group. And yeah, she gets a lot of, to do in season four, but it, it does sort of feel like she doesn't get a ton after that. She sort of like, you get a little bit of the, um, the romance drama between her and Daniel, but that's really her, her time to shine is that fourth episode. Yeah. And I think even if, even if she does get sidelined, I think the fact that she does get one episode and again, she is not considered to be part of the main cast. I think that alone kind of justifies her character's existence and at least puts her in a position to to play off of Lindsay and Daniel as well as she does. So there's a, there's a, some very good chemistry across the board. So uh, any any I assume that I, it's tough to say that episode four is the uh, it can be a favorite, but her almost running over the other freaks when she sees. Karen hitting on Daniel that 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 is a genuinely funny dark moment hell yeah that's such that's such a good moment in like classic like teenage hormonal response to something like that I think too especially with the Kim Kelly and poor poor Lindsay just has to be a passenger in the side dealing with that situation hoping she doesn't die it's pretty funny so it, it, it's really interesting to me to think about like the difference in high school experience so when I went to high school, Kevin, I, the first three years, I was at an all-boys Catholic school. And the dynamic of that is just so different from going to a co-ed high school that I I, I just think that it's it's different. And I, it, not in a good way or a bad way, but it just – the dynamics completely change when you're thinking of single gender versus having both genders. And I can't imagine 20 years from now that we're ever – that we are still going to have – a lot of single sex schools, but it is a, it's, it's my high school experience is so different from yours. And I think so different from this show because both genders are attending. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very unique. All right, Kevin. So uh, I have a trivia question for you before we go into the geeks. This is going to be our transition point. Are you ready to play some trivia? Sure. I guess so. Which are there more of Ronda Rousey televised WWE matches or episodes of Freaks and Geeks. Televised matches. Trying to think. When Now, when you say televised, I assume this includes, like, pay-per-view broadcasts. Raw, SmackDown, and pay-per-view broadcasts. Okay. Um, this is where I do some mental math here. I am going to say Freaks and Geeks episodes, but barely. It is Ronda Rousey televised matches by a hair 24 televised matches versus 18 episodes of freaks and geeks okay i knew it was going to be close but i didn't know which way to go i feel like freaks and geeks matches or freaks and geeks matches episodes would have been funnier it it actually that's that's because I, I went into this thinking that the, it would be freaks and geeks but then i saw it i was like damn but uh, if i if i included house shows it would have been it would have been like 16 to 18 yeah I didn't realize how much she wrestled not on TV, which is strange. Yeah, well, you know, to her credit, when she was there, she was there. So, you know. And six. never to be seen again. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, getting pregnant and whatever else, that'll that'll happen. All right, let's talk about the geeks. So we have to talk about John Francis Daly as Sam Weir. The thing that I will say about his performance specifically is you literally see him, like, age up a little bit over the course of the few months that the show is airing and the episodes are airing um, and his performance. I think, I don't think he's ever bad, but I think his performance gets a lot better as the series goes on. Something else about Sam is they really go out of their way to make him like the Charlie Brown of this universe and just 
constantly making fun of him and he ends up naked and just being bullied all the time. And the thing that I like is that at somewhere along the way, again, around that midway point, a switch gets turned and they finally expand his character beyond just getting bullying all the time and giving him some agency, allowing him to date Cindy and things like that. And that's that's probably this is probably the place where we could talk about uh, Cindy. But John Francis Daly is somebody who just gets a lot of shine throughout and you really see him grow into the character by the end, too, where it, it kind of sucks that this show didn't get a lot of seasons for many reasons. But, man, I would have really loved to have seen specifically what Sam, what ended up with Sam in future seasons. And we talk about launching careers here. I like I know he did waiting and then he was on that very short lived Fox show Kitchen Confidential. But what the heck else has John Francis Daly done lately? So he's somebody who has had a weird career in that he is not only doing acting stuff, but he is also doing a lot of writing. So I think I think a lot of people, I don't know of a lot of people, but he did 140 episodes of the TV series Bones, which is probably why you have not seen a lot of him, because he is doing so much of that. Um, he is also a writer. Um, he wrote, he did a, he did, got a story by credit on Spider-Man Homecoming, as well as the 2015 Vacation, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. So he is, he's definitely had a career. Um, it's just not one that maybe we've seen everything that he's done as much as uh, like your Seth Rogans, your James Franco's, but he's definitely been around. And that, at least from my perspective, that's all good stuff. So, hey. If he's writing all that stuff, keep at it, John Francis Daly. Yeah, um, I do agree that the the later part of the series treats him better than the first. He's just sort of like a, a shy, nervous kid in any situation he's put in, bullied. Uh, and I think he's he finally like embraces that like being who I am is okay instead of trying to be cool or trying to hide who you are, which again, that's a very normal, common thing for a high schooler to do, especially when you're when you have a crush on a cheerleader and you're so far in your mind anyway, so far out of their league and not at all in that social group and treated by her peers as a geek and doesn't get respect. But again, what I really like about Cindy is when he goes from being the shoulder to cry on and like a sister to him, like a Lisa Melhouse situation to finally dating. He's like, she's boring and she sucks and has bad opinions. And I'm glad it was. And I think again, that's sort of this other realistic aspect is this girl that he's longed for this entire series it finally happens and he's just like ah, this isn't exciting and i love that twist i love that it isn't like all his dreams coming true and i love that he's the one who calls it off and and like accepts it for what it is um and i think that that's a bold character choice for him and something that maybe early season that sam wouldn't have done uh, that he does later. And that I think shows a lot of character growth just in that arc itself with Cindy. And I think that's where you witness a lot of it. And I like the relationship that him and Lindsay have too. Like they're not best friends or anything, it, but it feels like as someone with an older brother, it feels like a very authentic older, older sibling, younger sibling dynamic. I would agree. I think that their interactions are pretty minimal and sometimes they could be acidic, but there's also some genuine moments as well. And I think that's kind that is what a sibling relationship in the best in the best the best version of a sibling relationship. That's what it is, especially when they're they're relatively close in age as these two are. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, 
I, I don't want to say a breakup is a favorite moment, but it really feels like that is the moment when Sam becomes kind of a fully realized person. And like, he is taking agency for himself and like, even his friends are telling him not to break up with her. And the fact that he does it and he knows it's the right thing is uh, it speaks a lot of him. And if he is, uh, if he, it, if he develops that level of self-awareness, uh, that is going to speak very well for him for the future because he is ultimately going to end up with somebody that he is much happier with in the future anyway. Uh, so, Kevin, any favorite moments from Sam Weir besides the breakup that you want to highlight? Oh, dude, like the episode where he asked Cindy to dance with him at the ball and, uh, you know, he was given the advice to pick a slow song. And so it's come sail away by sticks and he doesn't realize it picks up into a fast song halfway through. And by the time he asks Cindy and they get to the dance floor, it's hit the fast part and he's like freaking out. Gotta be my favorite Sam moment for sure. I will say, so here's another fun fact. Apparently sticks, the band was performing at my high school in the 1970s and eighties. So there's a, there's another fun fact for you. Another, another connection. It's, um, it's a weird thing because that song is is iconic and maybe overplayed, but the way that this show specifically uses it, I think is some of the best stuff that they've ever like. It's probably some of the best of the best stuff the show ever did with music because they really timed it out well. I mean, it's no Cartman having to finish the song when he hears it, but it's a pretty good moment. I mean, I I really want to I really want to just find that clip and just play it of him singing it one time. That that might be the opening of the show. Oh fact. boy. Uh, we'll see. Uh, let's talk about uh, future 4chan slash 8chan poster Sam Levine as oh, uh, no. Neil Schweiber. Oh no. I mean, the way that he talks about women, Kevin, <laughs> leads me to believe that this is what he would do. Name now, one thing wrong with the way he talks about women. I mean, I could name you a lot. I won't even get into the fact that he has a dummy and uh, the ventriloquist act becomes a oh. boy. What a creepy act that was. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's not and, good. And the way, look at the way his father treats his mother. And right. then you understand that he's the son and it all comes together. Exactly. So I think that has a lot to do with it too, is it is his, his life is very much a, his influences are very much from his dad and his brother and how he views the world, what he likes, how he views relationships and women and all this other stuff. Very much a product of his environment. For sure. And look, there are times that he is a very good friend to Sam and Bill. I think like the moment when he discovers who his father is cheating with and, you know, he's going around to all the garages with the, the door opener and then throws the door opener in the garage. I mean, that is some really heartbreaking stuff. And it's, it's a very, very good performance uh, by Sam Levine. And I, you know, I kind of mocked it earlier, but even with him using the doll and what the kind of just the acidic tone, I mean, that's the thing. This show was able to get away with so much, especially being, again, this is a show that's airing on NBC in 1999, when we're talking about NBC at this time, we're talking about Friends and Frasier and ER and the first season of The West Wing. And then you have this weird show uh, that's airing on Monday nights. And yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing what they were able to get across. And Neil's a part of that. Neil, of course, has a crush on Lindsay because, of course, he does. And even that gets just completely ripped apart uh, when he sees his older brother 
uh, making out with Lindsay outside of a party. Uh, a brother played by the great David Crumholtz. And as much as, you know, the, the dummy is sort of this weird, gross thing, it's also him channeling his stress about his father cheating on his mother. And I also think it's really interesting that the, the, the way that he find he discovers that both his brother knows about his father's womanizing and that his mother is aware of it too. And it's something they're working on, but they still stay together. You know, I think in a lot of kids' minds, it's like mom finds out dad's cheating on him. They get divorced and that's the end of the relationship. And like she says, marriage is really complicated. Relationships are really complicated. And it strangely makes him feel better to know he's not alone. And that's when he ends his ventriloquist thing. But again, it's one of those things that I appreciate where that dynamic isn't cut and dry. It's messy. It's it's a strange thing to deal with, but everyone's aware of it and they're working on it. Maybe the father isn't working on it as much as he says he is, but that, you know, in some ways that's life for some people. And uh, that's when, I mean, maybe he doesn't have the maturity to understand all of that now, but it's enough that he got it off his chest that he's able to put aside the the ventriloquism act and finally like, exhale a little bit but yeah it how they handle things like that i think is so fascinating and and really appreciated absolutely and of course there is martin star as bill havercheck and martin star is kind of an awkward performer at times and i think he's also somebody that really grows into his role uh to the point where it seems like maybe there were going to be some changes to his character in terms of maybe maybe he was going to be an athlete. And I think there are some signs that that maybe is the direction that they were going to go with this character. But he is somebody who kind of comes from a broken home. Uh, it is implied that his mother was an exotic dancer of some sort. But the thing that I love about Bill is that he's making these constant television references, enjoying shows like Dallas and Fantasy Island, the shows that were popular at the time. And it's unsure as to why, but eventually you realize that TV is essentially his escape. And the fact that he doesn't really have a father, his mother is, you know, working, so she isn't around as much. So television is kind of raising him at this point. And just the way that that all pays off is uh, is really, really good stuff. And uh, Martin Starr is great. He is. He's very good in this. And yeah, this again, we're tackling single parenthood in this show. Uh, mother t- trying to do her best for her son, who also has to deal with the, the awkwardness of being a teenager and not very popular and kind of a nerd. Yeah, sort of raised on television. Uh, What's interesting about that, too, is his mother, played by Claudia Christian, was a teenage actor in Dallas. So I think that was obviously a nod to that with her one of her first acting gigs there. And then I really love that his mother dates the gym teacher and he has to handle that. And that's a whole new dynamic into their life. Sometimes I feel like shows get this way, and I definitely noticed it with Freaks and Geeks, but like. Some shows get hung up on something and they reuse a character or a plot or something. And it feels like you're in the gym and with the coach a lot for like six episodes and then it just goes away. So somebody in the writing room or somewhere got really hooked on that character and that environment for telling the geek stories and then it just was over. Um, but I'm but I like that you got to see Bill reject and eventually embrace the idea of his mom dating his coach and i like too that it wasn't him necessarily being upset that his mom is seeing someone but seeing one of his teachers and especially a teacher who is um 
not a bully, but can sometimes be very aggressive in his tone. Very alpha. That he talks. Yeah, very alpha. But I mean, the coach is probably the best teacher at the school based on what we see anyway. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, if you, uh, you know, there, there are just some, there's some really heinous behavior and I know it's 1980, but it is remarkable to me. Just, I think in a lot of school systems, just most of this stuff would not fly And That's a good thing because man, I mean, we could go over, we will get into this a little bit later, but uh, some of these actions are not good. And uh, some of these teachers are terrible. Uh, most of them, in fact, but um, the the AV club teacher really saves the day, and uh, maybe we could get into that in just a minute. So I put Stephen Lee Shepard as Harris, and I went to his IMDb. He is in shockingly little, and I am incredibly disappointed by this because, for me, he's not somebody that I really remembered, but on this rewatch, he really stuck out as perhaps the most healthy in terms of his own mental health and his self-awareness and self-actualization. He might be the healthiest person on the show, freak, geek, or adult. Yes, no doubt about it. Has no qualms about who he is. Maybe he feels like he has more wisdom than he eventually does, but he's able to use that wisdom for good in helping the geeks along. I do like him as Dudley in the Royal Tenenbaums, but yeah, he seems like someone who like, that character he played on the show is who he was in real life. Cause I think he ended up doing stuff with role-playing games and, and such. And just that's, that was his, the, the, his lot in life gave acting a try. That was that. And uh, yeah, I just do whatever he's doing, but yeah, he's fantastic in this show. All right. Let's talk about some of the other important cast members. We talked about Betty, Becky and Baker as Gene, or not as Gene Weir, but we talked about Betty, Becky and Baker in Brockmire. Uh, she is also playing Sam and Lindsay's mom here, and she gets uh, a lot of shine along with Joe Flaherty as Harold Weir. Uh, they come across as a very waspy uh, couple at times. Of course, Harold is kind of the emotionally unavailable father, which is that is very Midwest to a T. <laughs> uh, so they, they really nailed that part that he is just incapable of both showing his emotions and handling emotions from anyone else. Uh, my favorite moment between these two is probably the way that they talk about sex even is, is really funny. And Kevin, I have to tell you that there are times when I, when I read about like the way that sex was treated in these times and, you know, especially the forties and fifties, how the hell did we ever have a baby boom given the way, given the way that we talk about sex? The prude nature. That's a very good question, but that's something I did like about the parents is there's the one episode where the kids are away and they're like, let's go have sex. Taking that moment to, to get it done. And they, and they see, and you see, they really enjoy it and they really embrace their, their sexuality with one another. 100% missionary though, right? 100%. Oh, I mean the character that, uh, the mom plays this is so different from who she is in Brockmire. And even, and even, uh, the father is so different from, um, the guy in Happy Gilmore. You will not make this shot, you jackass. Joe Flaherty is pretty great. He's not He's not in enough stuff, I think. He's, he really isn't. But uh, he, I, I, the early running gag, and I'm glad they kind of got away from this because they gave him a little bit more depth, but him saying that everybody was dead because of either drugs or crime was, was pretty funny early on. You know what happened? He died. 
that's something that I felt like was going to be a, a far more running gag than it was, but they dropped it pretty fast. I, uh, which, which is a relief because it was, it was definitely wearing out its welcome, especially when you're binging the show and it's in every episode. Yes. You definitely feel it. Uh, sure. So let's talk about Ben Foster. Ben Foster, who has gone on to have quite a career, uh, cast as Eli. He's in a couple of episodes. Uh, he plays a special student. They never really identify what his uh, learning different learning difference is, whether he is identified as autistic or um, or whether he has low IQ or anything of that sort. But he is definitely somebody that um, is kind of played for last. And um, they they don't go all the way with it. They don't totally make him a joke, but. Again, this is something I'm not sure that would fly totally in 2021, especially having somebody who is not special needs playing someone who is. No, like this is I I watch this and like it's it's a little awkward to watch. But the fortunate thing is there's nothing they do that's so insidious with Eli that it makes it like age incredibly poorly beyond having someone who isn't. who doesn't have a a learning disability or what have you playing this role. Um, But the way that he is, I think treated by some of the people in the school is very honest. And I think Lindsay embracing him and inviting him to the dance is really sweet and something she would actually do. Uh, And even the, the geeks using him in the episode where they befriend the girl and they have him go, they lied to him about one of the girls saying that three's company isn't funny because it seems like that's something he's very fixated on, which I think is something you see people do in, in those scenarios go to talk to her about also feels earnest, but also like, you know, ah, you're manipulating somebody like this. Like that's not so great. But then later in the episode, they at least let him sit at his lunch table and, and talk to him about the show. So you're like, all right, I guess that's a balance, but yeah. Uh, would I prefer the character not being there at all? Yes, but fortunately they don't go way too dark with it like maybe some other shows would have. Uh, you have the great Anne Dowd as Kim Kelly's mom. I mentioned that earlier. You have Mike White, one of the writers of the show, uh, playing Kim Kelly's brother. And he Can I just the- say that Anne Dowd's accent is one of the best parts of this show? It is. Uh, I don't. I don't quite know how to identify that accent because it's definitely not. Uh, maybe it's a Michigan accent. Maybe I just kind of miss that. But yeah, it is definitely something very unique. And I mean, she's she's literally a, an all timer. And um, just her, even in the two episodes that she was in, uh, was a pleasure. Uh, so, and we have Tom Wilson as Coach Fredericks. The thing that I respect about the show. And I feel like I feel like they would be really tempted to do this. They don't make a single reference. They don't even hint at or make a joke, anything related to Back to the Future. And that's something that I have. Their restraint in that specific area uh, makes me respect them all the more because I fully expected in another scenario they would have done a wink and a nod. But they don't even do that at all, ever. Yeah, absolutely. Very much appreciated. Uh, so, yeah, Coach Fredericks is probably the most well-developed. Something – so we talk about showing versus telling. I really like the conversation that Coach, Coach Fredericks has with Sam and the fact that we don't hear any of it. Like, Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a network show, so they can't have this Frank talk about sex. But I don't care. Like, whatever they said, it's better that we didn't hear it and that we see it. Yeah, see, seeing Sam's reaction to it, 
the like, oh my gosh, like, oh, this is gross to laughing and all this stuff. And like, it feels like a teacher having a genuine, honest, open conversation with a student. And he's like, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but like, I think it's for the best that you have this conversation. Just don't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, I like that. I like that he did that. So I think I, I want to talk about a couple of the some of the themes and the topics, and this is the place where we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with the teachers and and say very negative things about them. Just a, you know, you get a lot of toxic masculinity throughout the show, and a lot of that has to do uh, with the bullying. And I think you you get that specifically when Bill ends up in the hospital because of a peanut allergy, and that that is kind of the logical endpoint of of the bullying and where it goes and like in 2021 like maybe he gets arrested just for putting him in a coma like in 1980 eh. but in 2021 like i think that's even more serious because we are even compared to 1999 we are so much more aware of these allergies these very serious allergies uh that people have and we could you know we could talk about the blame game and why it's happening but People have allergies to shellfish and to peanuts and all these things. And the fact that the show is willing to go there and and explore that, I think, says a lot. And especially through the lens of bullying. Yeah. And this is also something that I remember at the time was sort of like coming up because I finished elementary school in 2000. So I finished sixth grade in 2000. And it was like the last year or two is when they finally had like a separate table in in the cafeteria for like students with peanut allergies or like if you sit here, you can't eat anything with peanuts in it. Um, And of course, this airs in 2000. So like that was just now being like embraced by schools at the time this aired. So, of course, 20 years earlier, it wouldn't have been embraced at all. Uh, And yeah, like that's a super mean prank for that kid to do. And like, obviously his dad bring him to the hospital to apologize to the mother and then was the right thing to do. But you're right. Like the fact that she didn't press charges or do anything more severe to that kid, 100% would have happened now nowadays, but you're right. Like back then, eh, it, it, it's, it's a mean thing to do. And he apologized and like, he's still a, a terrible kid, but yeah. And I, but I, on the flip side of that, I also like that you find like he gives that speech to Bill while he's passed out about why he's so mean to them, how he just wants to be liked by them, which I also think is a very honest thing. And even more honest is the end of the episode where after being invited by Bill to go to the, the sci-fi convention with them, he rides his bike there and still can't bring himself to do it. Uh, I like that. It wasn't like he joins the geeks for the rest of the show. It's like he had, they gave him the opening. They welcomed him. He almost did it and then chickened out and couldn't bring himself to do it because of whatever he feels he has to retain of his reputation in high school. Uh, I like all those choices. But then we don't really see him bullying them after that. Yes. So So that's important too. That's also a specific choice. Uh, that they're making. So there are a number of scenes of poor teaching. One of the more interesting ones is there is a discussion about drinking and driving, especially this is the episode where Lindsay wants to, it's a very sitcom. It's probably the most sitcom-y of all the episodes because it's one where Lindsay is hosting a party because her parents have left and she's going to get a keg. And of course, at this time, they just happen to be talking about drinking and driving. But so they have these very poorly done skits, which, Kevin, if I don't ever do skits with college or high school kids, just don't do it. They never work. They're ineffective. I think mortify. And I think research has shown that the best way to reach 
high schoolers is through their vanity. And that's actually the way that you convince them to not drink and drive. That's what that's what the research says anyway. I don't know if that's 100 percent accurate, but that's my understanding. Most definitely true. Yeah, those skits. I don't know a single person you can say who was ever convinced by those skits. Honestly, it just seems like something the school does. So if something happens, they can say, well, we did this. Don't we're not liable. And that's that. It's a cover your ass tactic more than an earnest attempt to get kids to stop drinking and driving or having sex. Yeah, I'm not a not a big skip person anyway, but that's that's another conversation. Well, uh, that there goes my 2023 podcast idea. Whoops. Uh, yeah. OK. Uh, the English teacher in the third episode. So this is this is a moment that we're going to talk about way more than it deserves. But as somebody who is an English teacher, if you want somebody to embrace the book or the article that you want them to read her behavior in this episode is the complete absolute opposite of how you should approach it. And again, I understand it's 1980 and things have thankfully changed so much, but if you want somebody to read crime and punishment, uh, don't do what she did in this episode, which is basically to demean all other forms of literature and to basically demean them for reading. I mean, look, is, is reading the star Wars novelization high art? No, it is not. But the important thing is that you want you want them to be reading something, anything, to stimulate their minds. That that's you're that's getting exactly what I was going to say. Like you're getting them to re- getting people to read anything, especially nowadays. We're talking 2021 when there's when there's cell phone games, when there's iPads, when there's you know all these other things. Getting them to read anything, even a comic book, is a win. Absolutely, and I know that Harry Potter is justifiably problematic at this point, but there is a generation of kids who read seven very long books because of that author. And that's not something that can be totally ignored, even though we should go out of our way to ignore uh, everything that Joanne says at this point. But uh, yeah, Joanne? J.K. Rowling. That's, oh, I didn't realize people, mo- people, mo- people mock her now by calling her. I see. Um, and even, you know, you have... Anyway, go ahead. Well, and even you have like... Um, like I'm sure the Hunger Games books got some some kids or teens into reading. And then, of course, like adults and maybe some younger people who shouldn't have been reading it, like the Fifty Shades novels. Like, can you laugh at them and, and, and all that stuff? Of course you can. But it probably got people picking up and buying books that wouldn't have done so otherwise. And the Twilight books as well. Those yes. books were pretty massive. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. I mean, Twilight is a big one. Fifty Shades. I mean, there's no doubt that Fifty Shades was also uh, very important in terms of reading and getting people to actually sit down and read a book. And yeah, this uh, this English teacher sucks. Anyway, uh, Mr. Kachowski, I believe that's how you pronounce, uh, he's really terrible because he, he accuses a student of cheating without any evidence. And as somebody who has had to do that myself, tell a student that they have cheated, Unless you have the evidence, don't do that. It's awful. And the, uh, yeah, it was just, it was very bad. And it made me want to see his character get fired and never be allowed in front of students again. Okay. Bad teacher, very enjoyable television character, at least from my perspective. Especially when Sam's brother comes to the school and makes fun of him. And he's like, all right, that's a detention. He's like, uh, I don't go here. And he's just like, 
then just get the hell out of here. Like, why am I even putting up with your bullshit? And he's like, man, I hate when they come back. What, genuinely one of my favorite moments of the entire series is Justin being like, I'm sick of, I have to deal with every student shit, and now I have a fucking alumnus coming after me. Fuck off. Uh, Mr. Rosso is also somebody who is trying too hard. I think there are times when he does give very good advice, and I think they really, they really figure his character out in the second half and they, they kind of calibrate him better. Cause I mean, the basic idea is that he's a burned out hippie who is just a guidance counselor at school, which as, as the 1994 hit movie clerks proved is a thankless job. But Mr. Russell at times does not give very good advice, but there are other times when he does. And he is probably the most important adult character at the school. Uh, we see him even more than coach Fredericks and Mr. Kachowski and everyone like that. So we do need to mention Mr. Rosso, and uh, it's a very good performance as well. Maybe my favorite character of the show. Uh, so fun to watch. Yet it's like awkward in the way he tries to like sort of be hip and embrace them. But I also think like there are part of it is also like, yeah, I do listen to this music and I know what you're going through. I have herpes, all these other things that make him relatable. And he's the only adult who treats them like individual human beings and not just dumb kids who you shouldn't listen to no matter what. And I love the way he puts the kids on blast when they come to the bar and the fake IDs and he's in the band and he kind of uh, embarrasses them publicly. So he's not afraid to do things like that too, even if he wants to be the person who listens to what the students actually have to say and do his job. I appreciate that there's moments like that too. Like he doesn't let them get away with underage drinking uh, and kind of uh, humiliates them for it. So I really enjoy Mr. Rosso uh, for the entirety of the show. Right. I, I think the best teacher is the AV club teacher. He gets one scene in this, or maybe like two scenes, but he literally gives the geeks the best possible advice. And I think in terms of thinking about high school, this is actually the best advice that the jocks are going to peak when they are in high school, 99% of them are going to peak at this time because some of them will go into college, but that's a very low percentage. And an even lower percentage are going to end up in uh, going to the professionals. And I think the idea is that, look, the, the four years of high school are kind of a nightmare. And I, I think college is really the place where you kind of find yourself and I think that's represented when Neil's older brother comes back and that's the way that he talks about college. I think is, is pretty accurate that that that's the place where I think you ultimately kind of find yourself a little bit more than high school. High school is just, I mean, it's a gulag that you have to survive for four years and you're just dealing with hormones and awkwardness, but what a, what a tremendous moment. And again, this, this is a person who is in two scenes and I would argue gives probably one of the most important pieces of advice that is disseminated on the show. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, for a lot of people, high school is life when they're in it and it's hard to, un until you're a senior and you can see the other side into college or wherever your life takes you after high school, it's really hard to not feel that way. And I think the geeks need to hear that. Like, you're probably going to take a lot of shit for a lot of time, but ultimately like things are going to get better for you. But yeah, and I think it also puts into perspective, like you said, for for basically high schools, it's just get them through. Just you have them for four years, just get them through, get them to the other side, and just it, the, the line doesn't stop. We get the seniors out, new freshmen come in, just get them through, get, have them get whatever grades they're going to need to, who cares, just, just, just move on, push them through. 
individuality. What's that? Keep going. Here's your here's your slot for lunch. Get get like just get through the system. And you're right. Like college is the place where it's your individuality is more embraced. Even his brother coming back and, and telling Lindsay, like, I can't tell you what what college is like. It would be too painful now that you're still in high school, which is a uh, very very true. It's uh it's pretty accurate. Uh, given given my experience and. I think the experience of a lot of people who have had the chance to uh, to do both. I mean, this show just really explores bullying, divorce, so many so many themes that I think a lot of other shows, even at this time, shied away from. And I think that there are certainly some things in 2021 that don't hold up, uh, but I certainly think there are some things that do ultimately. So, uh, Kevin, any other themes or general topics about the show? that you want to bring up before we uh, we give some awards? Well, I really think I, I there's I wrote down some of the, the notable special guests here uh, that I wanted to go through, if you don't mind. Um, go for it. So I talked about Claudia Christian and Kevin Teague in the show, but somebody on the show was a Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan uh, because Mr. Lakovar, I believe he's the he's the science teacher. I forget if it's chemistry, biology or physics or whatever. Uh, but he's played by Trace Boulot, who is one of the mad scientists in the original Mystery Science Theater 3000. And Joel Hodgson, who was the host of that show, was the disco clothes store owner and the guy who ran the discotheque at the bowling alley at the end. So obviously somebody was a fan of that show and cast both those guys. Uh, Kim's friend Karen, played by Rashida Jones, obviously went on to more fame in The Office and Parks and Rec and in other movies and such. But funny to see her uh, as a young actress in the show for an episode. Uh, we talked about Paul Feig, of course. He was one of the band members uh, in Distortion, which is the band that Nick tries out for. Shia LaBeouf, of all people, is the school mascot. And what a life slash career that guy has had since this show. Um, David Koechner, of course, would be in a ton of uh, stuff with uh, these people over the years. He was the waiter at the restaurant where they had the all-you-can-eat thing. Jason Schwartzman's there as so he provides fake IDs. Leslie Mann plays Miss Foote, the teacher that Bill falls in love with, and is, of course, the real-life wife of Judd Apatow. Um, Wait a minute. You're telling me that Leslie Mann is Judd Apatow's wife? I had no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Met on the Cable Guy, an under, a movie I think is quite underrated myself. Um, ben Stiller as a sensitive CIA agent in a very funny one-time role here, and then Lizzie Kaplan as Sarah. Uh, the, the girlfriend of Ben, she's in a bunch of different episodes too, is just sort of like a friend of Nick's, but they are dating by the last episode and she goes on to have a life of her own as an actress. So kind of mind blowing. Some of these names that appear here just as like nothing, uh, characters. Yeah. It just feels like they literally were like, you know, Ben Stiller were canceled. Just, it's like what Conan did on the tonight show. Where the last few weeks of the Tonight Show, where he just ran up the budget, I, <laughs> I, I would like to think that that's what they did in this situation. Well, you know, and I'm sure you know Judd Apatow worked on the Ben Stiller show in in the '90s, so I'm sure it was calling in a favor for a friend or something. Can I just say we really need to put the best of that specific era of the Tonight Show in a capsule of some sort that it so that it can be relived? I don't think the Tonight Show has ever been better, and I don't think it ever will be again. No, no doubt about it. All right. Um, so, Kevin, I, I need you to do an honest self-assessment. Which character are you most like? That's tough, man. I think my instinct is to say Ken or Neil. 
Well, and the Neil the Neil one has led me to call the FBI on you. So well, not so be much knocking the, on the door soon. Not so much the part. But I feel like the the sarcasm of uh, Ken is something that I'm I'm very familiar with. But more, but Neil seems to be the most social of the crew, and I feel like I have that sort of like social ish kind of behavior of him. Not so much the womanizing or the ventriloquism, but also. Somebody who watched a lot of like SNL and, and things of that nature. So kind of a combo of the two, but I guess I would go maybe a little bit more Ken than Neil. I think it's, I'm a combination of Ken and Sam because again, the sarcasm thing, but definitely a lot of, I have a lot of Sam in me. That's for sure. I bet you do. <sighs> just reinforce, I just reinforce <laughs> my sadness in that. So uh, that we did not plan that bit, but it really worked out. Uh, favorite character. I, I mean, I love Mr. Rosso, but I think if you're going with the main cast, I, I'm a big Nick Andopoulos fan. I mean, I think it's boring, but I think Lindsay is is my favorite character. She's the one that I definitely really appreciated on this rewatch a lot. And again, I think all I think this I mean, again, when you're talking about this cast, you are talking about one of the best casts that has ever been assembled. I have had almost nothing negative to say about the casting and the big picture directions that this show takes. And certainly I, you know, I could nitpick, but just you will not, I don't think you're ever going to find a cast as good as this, because again, it's not three people. It's not five. It's not six. You're talking about, you're ta- going like 10, 12 deep. And that is pretty remarkable. And again, you're thinking about also the guest stars, the cameos, just nailed it. But on an all-star team, I think, I think it's still pretty amazing that Linda Cardellini really uh, stuck out and definitely my favorite. Someone she also played off to who we didn't give any love was Millie, which is like the perfect character to represent her pre-freak life. Uh, Mathley, goody two-shoe, has one moment of Breaking Bad when they're going to the Who concert, which is a great episode. Uh, but I thought she was a perfect character for her to play off of and and show what, what Lindsay was like in the before time. Because when we start, she's trying to and eventually fits in with the freaks but millie's a great character to show where she was before that yeah i think yeah we didn't really talk about millie a lot but she is an important foil for Lindsay in a lot of ways but she is also a friend and again she is also somebody that i think starts out as being very one note but they really get to play with her character and give her some depth and you know she bails Lindsay out a couple times and i think um, I think that's a good thing. And she even develops kind of a friendship with Kim, even though Kim did run over her dog. And I'm sure that's why you will never embrace Kim Kelly because she ran over a dog. You know, I know you would, I knew you were going to bring that up, but honestly, the way it's handled, like wasn't too traumatic or whatever. So like, I mean, it is what it is. It was not nearly as, it was a much easier digestible moment than you might think when you just hear it on the surface. Um, and I like the way that, Kim embraced Millie to try to make herself feel better than eventually comes clean when she's about to drink a beer. Uh, well, well done. Well done episode. Uh, even if it is a little sad. All right. Favorite episode. Mine is Kim Kelly. Uh, the Kim Kelly episode, episode four. Again, I don't know what this says about me and what kind of person I am, but I think it's, I think it might be the, it's, because just the way that it opens up the world, it gives a supporting character shine. You get a lot of the parents. You get a lot of these different interactions. It's the it's it's definitely a great episode. And look, I could certainly make an argument uh, for the episode where 
Uh, Lindsay goes back to being a mathlete. I think that was really fun because you get to see her just in completely different fashion and kind of seeing what life would be like once again with the mathletes. You could talk about the finale. You could talk about the penultimate episode, um, talking about uh, Ken's girlfriend being intersex. Like there is so, there's so many great episodes, but for me, episode four, Kim Kelly is your friend um, or Kim Kelly is my friend. You know, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's interesting because favorite episodes hard for me to pick. Cause I feel like I almost never pick up this DVD, watch an episode and put it back. It's almost an entire series rewatch. So picking a favorite episode is tough. Cause I don't really watch it that way. And I also, this might be a little bold. I don't know. There's a bad episode amongst the bunch. Uh, they're all pretty great. Yes. Some are stronger than others, but I don't think there's a, a bad one amongst them. And even though I do think the second half of the series is better than the first, I think my favorite episode is the second episode, Beers and Weirs, where Lindsay has the uh, party at her house and Neil and Bill and them switch out beer with fake beer. Uh, Just a really funny episode, heartwarming with maybe, you know, Neil helping Lindsay and it doesn't get too bad uh, and just like. Even the end of the episode where Ken's like, yeah, I knew it was fake beer. I made $75 and quarters. Uh, I, I think that's like your classic high school themed episode, but done really, really well. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, like you could almost not go wrong with any of the episodes, I think. I mean, I think that there is there's some there's some greatness to be found in all of them. And this is by no means a comprehensive podcast. I mean, we are not doing an episode by episode breakdown. This is kind of a 90 minute to two hour kind of general discussion about the themes and the cast. And I think we've kind of done a good job of hitting on a lot of the most important points. But again, this is not meant to be comprehensive, but Kevin, any final thoughts, anything else you want to say about the show that you have not done so already? Not particularly. I'm kind of glad we didn't go episode by episode one, because that would have been too long, but two, I think, discussing this as a whole is more important than episode by episode. Cause again, when I watch it, it's usually, I watch the whole series within a few days um, because it, it's such a good thing to experience as a whole. It's really rare for me to feel like watching one episode and taking it off the shelf and then putting it back on. But this to me is like one of the ultimate ensemble casts. Like everyone is good because everyone else they play off of is also really good. And I feel like even if you took one piece away or changed one character it's just not the same. And so I think that's why we give so much credit to Allison Jones for the success of the show. But again, I think the legacy of the show is obviously it's a really good show, but the way it launched so many careers or it serves as a point to go back and say, wow, look at where they were then and look at where they are now. It, it'll live forever. And I think it's and I think because of some of the stuff with the, the the licensed music and it taking forever to come out on DVD and stuff like that too also gives it a, a life of its own as well. And if it's a show you've never watched, if you can find it with all the original music, because uh, I think they just put the DVD and Blu-rays out of print this past summer, if you can find it in, in the way it's intended to be watched, I really recommend it. The thing that is so special about the show is that we got one magical season and the theme of this is canceled too soon. So I, I maybe we could have gotten in the modern era, you know, maybe five or six seasons, but, you know, maybe those five or six seasons would have been bad or maybe the show would have would have lost something if it went longer because there's so many cast members and, you know, everybody was going to be a big star and a lot of the creatives may have left to do their own thing. 
so there's there's so many directions that this could have gone in. It could have also gone four or five seasons and been one of the best shows ever created and, you know, regarded as the launching point for so many careers. And, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars could have been made by this in, in another world. But the reality is that, you know, we have this one season and just about everybody has been able to find success elsewhere. And that's a really cool thing, I think. The thing that impresses me so much about this show is how well it holds up in 2021. There are a lot of the themes are still things that are not being explored um, in terms of class, which is something that we still don't really talk about. I also like that every episode stands on its own as an episode. That's a big theme of things that I talk about when we talk about TV, Kevin and I, is just having episodes and not having a 10-episode movie, which it drives me nuts. Every every damn TV show I watch these days feels like a 10-hour movie and not like 10 proper episodes. Correct. I also like the fact that the show is told in chronological order. Another one of my big pet peeves is the fact that every TV show seems to be taking place in multiple timelines. And I'm spending way too much time thinking about when a particular scene is taking place instead of focusing on the scene itself. So it was nice to go back to a show, maybe to simpler times and watch uh, just a fun character exploration. And look, the show is not always fun at times, but because it gets serious, but, it never, it always has a heart. And I think that's really important. There is a heart and a soul to this show that even among some of the very best shows in modern times that maybe you're not getting. So just really good stuff. Yeah. And I think, again, I talk about how the Simpsons doesn't work if Homer doesn't love his family. I think if the Weirs aren't a loving family together, yes, they fight. Yes, they disagree. But the fact that they love each other is important. You can do the broken home stuff or not getting along with your father and stuff with the side characters. And it works really well that way. But I think the weirs are the heart of the show and they have to be a four person unit for it all to work. And I think they do that really well. And I think a lot of the theme of, of this series is going to be time and place. Maybe if this were the day where there's a million streaming channels and stuff, freaks and geeks, if it doesn't make it on network television gets picked up by a streaming service for another season or two. And maybe it's just not as good. But I think the fact that Freaks and Geeks is one season of pretty much bangers start to finish with a great cast, uh, it'll li- it'll live forever. It has a long life uh, because of the way it was, not the way it could have been. Something I also wonder about, this show aired on Monday nights in 99 and 2000. And this is at a time when you had Monday Night Football. You had Monday Night Raw and Monday Nitro kind of at the, if not at their peaks, then just after their peaks. And I really wonder, like, putting that show on a Monday night, is that one of the reasons that it failed? Like, that's something that may be specific because you and I are, of course, wrestling fans. I am also a football fan. Like, I really wonder if the audience that would have embraced this show was just too busy watching Raw, Monday Night Football, and Nitro. Yeah, I mean, I I, I kind of thought the same thing. I mean, there's... I don't know how serious the words, but you hear like wrestlers joke at the time, like Monday Night Football is like, are we going to have to move this thing if fucking Raw and Nitros are pulling in, you know, on their on their worst nights, fours and fives and on their best nights, eights and nines. Uh, and, you know, freaks and geeks like their their pilot reached that episode, but none of their other stuff got that high. Um, so, yeah, again, time and place like it's just Monday night was a incredibly crowded thing. And, you know, football took a season off. Wrestling didn't. And. 
it was white hot at that time. And yeah, like that's something that you and I could talk about, especially well in 2000, like WWF especially was way hot. Um, yeah, I again, like who knows, different time, different network, different day. Who's to say? For sure. So we are going to be keeping up with this theme for the entirety of 2022, maybe even into 2023. We'll see how that all goes. But Kevin, next month, I am very, very excited for what we are going to be discussing. This is also a show that both of us have rewatched many times. I'm very curious to see how it holds up, but I think it's a very fitting show for two wannabe critics. (laughs) Is that because the show itself is called The Critic? Yes, it is. You know, it's been ages, and I mean ages since I've watched this show, so it's going to be very fun for me to revisit this with you, especially because we're such huge Simpsons fans and all this. Uh, and you know, John Lovitz has a really hit or miss career too, but boy, howdy, boy, howdy. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. And also, uh, you know, this, this was a a big one to start with 17, you know, 40 minute episodes. Now we're going to get into something a little bit more digestible with half hour cable television, uh, comedy here. Cable. It aired on ABC and Fox. Oh, you know what? I think I maybe discovered it then just on comedy central really in repeats. You know, it's weird. I remember watching this show on ABC and Fox. Yeah, you're old. That's how old I am. God damn. Man. <laughs> Ugh. I'm just going to go into my rocking chair and drink some tea and just put, wait a, put a blanket on your lap and let's get you dying. <laughs> All right. So for Ke- or Kevin, do you want to plug anything? I, I got a lot of the plugs out of the way at the beginning. Anything uh, else you want to plug? Uh, go get your vaccine. I'm going to plug that. How about that? Go get boosted, uh, and if you cannot get boosted, then stay inside. Get a get a KN95 mask or an N95 mask, and uh, stay stay home as much as possible. Listen to podcasts, watch movies. Um, hopefully, we can get through the next couple months and uh, not die. That's I think that is a goal, and I think it's one that we should all live up to. And if you are anti-vax and you're still listening, go fuck yourself. And that's really all I have to say. For Kevin, I'm Jerome. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next month. You know, Freaks and Geeks is a pretty good name. Do you think we could buy that and rename Enter the Real World?